This is not the media. This is hell. The United States is over. People in the United States are dying from the pandemic at a rate that is not being seen anywhere else in the world. While only one in 25 Earthlings actually lives in the U.S., those living in the States make up one in four COVID deaths. We are dying far more than anyone else. And yes, it is Trump's fault, but it's not only Trump's fault. The real issue just might be that here in the U.S., we do not have a common purpose abandoning the sense of any common good for an understanding of freedom that is defined by as today's guest will argue, an individual's inalienable right to own a personal arsenal of weaponry. And we do not view freedom as anything more than that. Any collective sense about doing what is best for our community, our neighbors, disappears, evaporates into thin air as the death toll continues to rise. We'll discuss what's gone horribly wrong with the pandemic in the States in a few when we speak with writer and photographer Wade Davis, who wrote the Rolling Stone article, <clears throat> The Unraveling of America. Wade holds the leadership chair in cultures and ecosystems at uh, at risk at the University of British Columbia. His award-winning books include Into the Silence and The Wayfinders. His new book, Magdalena, River of Dreams, is published by Knopf and is about his journey down Columbia's River of Dreams, being Magdalena. Wade's work has taken him from the Amazon to Tibet, Africa to Australia, Polynesia to the Arctic. Explorer in residence at the National Geographic Society from 2000 to 2013, Wade is currently Professor of Anthropology in the British Columbia Leadership Chair in Cultures and Ecosystems at Risk at UBC. Wade won the 2012 Samuel Johnson Prize, the top nonfiction prize in the English language. He holds degrees in anthropology, biology, and uh, ethnobotany, all from Harvard. 2016, he was made a member of the Order of Canada. 2018, he became an honorary citizen of Columbia. Find out more about Wade at daviswade.com. Follow Wade on Twitter at author Wade Davis. And of course, we'll wrap up the week as we do most weeks with the moment of truth from contributor Jeff Dorchin. This week, Jeff's ready for action later. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. How was your short week, Alex? Uh, short enough. <laughs> I need a sip of water real quick. Oh, 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 my week just keeps making me angrier and angrier. Dear the. Uh, kid who killed the two protesters in Kenosha was allegedly encouraged by local police, then allowed to escape back across state lines before he was eventually arrested, not by Wisconsin police, but police here in Illinois. And Kenosha's police chief is now apparently blaming the deaths, not on the shooter, but on the protesters for being out after curfew. On top of all that, the far right is trying to troll by starting up a Kenosha shooter for president campaign and the New York Times is reporting on their front page that the violence in Kenosha is pushing Wisconsin voters toward Trump despite in another article right next to that one reporting the multiple killer of protesters as a Trump supporter again a Trump supporter encouraged by cops kills protesters they let him get away and according to the New York Times Wisconsinites are thinking Hmm, maybe I should vote for Donald Trump for president. So, yeah, my week just keeps getting angrier. 
This week's question from L is, what will we all be using as currency after the fall? What will we all be using as currency after the fall? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins our new black This Is Hell Truckers cap with our global This Is Hell logo in gray. You can check out the black This Is Hell Truckers cap and all our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support to find out all the ways you can show your appreciation for completely listener-supported This Is Hell. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. Alex, how have listeners answered the question from Hell since yesterday's show? Uh, Braden S. says, Chinese Yuan or Pokemon cards. Sure. What will we be using as currency after, quote, the fall? Philip A. says, Bard coin, a cryptocurrency built on a blockchain infrastructure preserved by oral tradition. Disputes will be settled by a battle of the bands. Bradley R. says, ask gas or grass. Nobody rides for free. <laughs> Jeff C. says, bullets. Marco G. says, edible sunblock. <laughs> David G. says, we'll trade butterfly knives for Adderall. All right. <laughs> uh, Warren, That's a pretty good exchange, actually. Uh, what we'll be using as currency after the fall, Warren L. says, can openers credit Father Guido Sarducci. Mm. Uh, Jeff G. says, handies. I don't know if they'll still be using handkerchiefs <laughs> after the fall. So now I don't have to delete that. Uh, Pete V. says, bullets. And Margie says, human bones. You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Us Wrong. This is hell. My family went to the same cabins on the same lake for the 65th consecutive year. And this week during the monologue, I've been sharing my reflections while sitting at the end of the dock, reflecting upon the universe that seems to stretch on forever at the lake, inviting you to consider any thought, contemplate any idea. It's like you're tripping on nature and it's taking you, you know, not where, just like any psychedelic trip. We all work hard in my family every year, so we are able to visit our collective, idyllic, poor person's paradise using what few precious days capitalism allows us from work. On that lake, as my mind wanders across its surface, rushing waves that capture and free my imagination as it drifts up into a night sky full of stars, there will soon be floating on the opposite shore a Trump boat parade, the thought of which snaps me back to the reality that the paradise I can afford is smack dab in the middle of Trump country, where fear-filled fantasies that titillate lead to racism, hatred, violence, even as we saw in Kenosha, death of the hands of a white vigilante. The pandemic made the whole experience of our yearly holiday seem like a simulation of our vacation, like the pandemic has done to so many things, to just about everything we have clutched and clawed hard to preserve in order to have some sense of stability in whatever desperate normal we're trying to replicate. However, the pandemic reveals. And what it has revealed is the fissures and fault lines and everything, including any dream I ever had of living on that lake in that cabin after I realized we were surrounded by Trumpers. Yet a sign reading, Welcome to our woods, but leave your suburbs at home, gave me hope that maybe there are those I have something in common with living along the North Shore, as I too believe one of the worst things that has happened to the area is suburbanites moving in, chopping down forested lakefront lots, replacing them with pesticide-rich lawns and bland homes that appeared teleported for the most boring of subdivisions. Maybe there's at least a few people at the lake who are not interested in destroying human lives or life in nature to get their kicks. Maybe there's people who actually respect nature, don't hate based on stereotypes and sweeping generalizations that have been fed to them by those who wish to exploit the most base aspects of our souls. 
for their own private profit and gain. With those hopes heavy in my head, the lottery chance of possibly living at the lake and that it might be, maybe, could be tolerable, I walked back down from the end of the dock in the dark as it slowly got brighter from the bonfire's flames in the pit as I stepped off the dock onto the beach and another step to the fire surrounded by seating that all faces back into the beautiful oblivion of the lake reflecting the cosmos. My mind finally comes back and focuses on the talk around the fire with my family. There's pipe dreams being passed back and forth of buying the place and I know that sounds like people were getting high but they were not. It's just that the, those dreams were so intoxicating, it was like sharing a bowl, and the discussion was about as based in reality as any that are really, really high. What would it be like living at the lake in the cottages that have been in our family for so long? Why, who would get which cabin? How much do you think they'd take to buy the place? After all, it is a dump, and it would be difficult to get an inspector to sign off on it without a pretty handsome bribe. Also, try finding a bank that would allow a loan for four buildings that each have rotting roofs and broken foundations with porous exterior walls, zoning issues on the entire property, and one of those cabins has a serious gas issue. None are winterized and living here in the winter would living there in the winter would be brutal, but who needs to live there year-round or would want to do so? We could have the best of both worlds, living in Chicago for 9 months out of the year. And then at the lake every summer for three months. We could even turn one building into offices, and there's plenty of space for me to have a remote studio. So we could all work from the lake as well. The impact on the show's content could be fascinating, fascinating as it would shift the focus to more rural issues, to more of a connection with nature in hangover country, and not to be so urban-centric. The weird stories I would stumble upon could be, well weird, like really weird, and stuff nobody else would be talking about, which is what we always have as a goal here on This Is Hell. God's favorite radio show should be broadcasting at least a few months a year from God's country, not the godless city that frankly has a far better selection of food, beer, weed, hell, everything, even gods to follow. We've got a far greater variety here in the city. And the nature out there is abundant. Waking to gaggles of gaggles of Canada geese honking at ducks quacking in response, eagles and turkey vultures soaring overhead, fish leaping out of the water to catch bugs, watching the horror of an ant being fed to an ant lion, even the beauty of the minute life of a pupa, a chrysalis dangling from a tree that we would watch become a monarch butterfly and the, and the pain of stepping on an acorn with your bare feet they all reconnect you with life all the kinds of renewed relationships with nature would definitely have an impact on the content of the show and more so my worldview besides my sister and her husband live near a military base a military range that has really increased the amount of maneuvers with live weapons it hosts since trump took office you know, with all those human rights abusing nations and their war crime riddled militaries, those scumbags. The bombing has been so intense that 500 pound bombs now regularly rattle my sister's windows, shake her walls, making her floors rumble, and she lives with the near constant sound of machine gun fire in the background, and we would all really like to get them the hell out of there. 
The fire burned down in the fire pit. The family went back to their separate, rundown shacks, and I went back to the dock for one last look. The fantasies these local freaks have about the outside world are frightening. The pandemic showed how desperate they are for the awful old normal they are willing to pretend exists through a simulation, all of which was based on their screwed-up view of the world that I can only imagine they must entertain. But here I was. Engaging in fantasies like the fantasies I derided Trump supporters for engaging in that are not based in reality. The kinds of fantasies that, whether they are about a dream home on a lake or how horrible everybody but white people are, kinds of fantasies we all need to allow us to cope with our lives under whatever you want to call this form of capitalism. I complained about the world being a fake, a simulation of itself during the pandemic, but it's always a simulation, pretending to be something it is not, whether that's a democracy or community or even humanity, we are always complicit in the conspiracy of propping up an effed up reality that distracts us from the most cruel brutalities of the system that sustains us. I condemned the ill-informed perspectives of, I believe, motivate the locals whose Trump support frightens me. Perspectives that they base on crude stereotypes like the crude stereotypes I have of Trump supporters. Alone at the end of the dock with your own thoughts as the universe finally reflects back upon you. All you have to blame is yourself. That's when you see deep into yourself and realize, looking into the darkest crevices where a more clear understanding of who, who you are resides, and you realize that you are so much like those who do not want to be, and you come to terms with the fact that, yes, this is hell. This is my own personal hell. Coming up on This Is Hell, the pandemic has devastated a United States that lacks any common purpose. We'll tell you what's happening on tomorrow's Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. More of your answers to this week's question, Mel, which is what will we all be using as currency after the fall? What will we all be using as currency after the fall, the listener with our favorite answer gets one of our new black This Is Hell trucker caps that you can find right now at thisishell.com when you click on support. During the moment of truth with Jeff Dorch and Jeff's ready for action later, I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. The planet's on fire. So, yes, this is Hell, the United States has been devastated by the coronavirus pandemic more than any other country, and the reason why just might be the way we view and understand and define freedom. Here to talk about the virus and the U.S. response from his perspective in Vancouver, writer and photographer Wade Davis wrote the Rolling Stone article, The Unraveling of America. You can find out more about Wade at, at DavisWade.com, and you can follow Wade on Twitter at author Wade Davis. Wade has a brand new book out called Magdalena, River of Dreams, which is published by Knopf and is a travel log, a journey down the beautiful, Columbia's beautiful Magdalena River. Welcome to This Is Hell, Wade. Hi, how are you? Good, Good. morning. It's great to have you on the show, sir. This is fantastic writing, and uh, I'm really looking forward to reading your book as well. You write, never in our lives have we experienced such a global phenomenon. For the first time in the history of the world, all of humanity, informed by the unprecedented reach of digital technology, has come together, focused on the same existential threat, consumed by the same fears and uncertainties, eagerly anticipating the same as yet unrealized promises 
of medical science with disparities when it comes to infections and deaths caused by COVID-19, especially here in the United States. To what extent can we come together with racial and wealth disparities and health outcomes of those who do get the virus? To what extent can we be together? You are in Canada. How much more does it appear Canada can come together than the United States? Well, you know, it's really important that people understand that, yes, I'm born Canadian, but I'm a naturalized American, you know, and I, I, I raised my family in the States. I found my career in the States. The United States gave me my education. My father-in-law, who was a senator from Chicago, uh, Charles Percy, was, you know, uh, almost U.S. president. He was invited to be the vice president from Richard Nixon. My brother-in-law was a Democratic senator. I've got a son-in-law serving in the military in the U.S., so I stress that this was not an anti-American um, screed in any way. I think of it more of a, almost a love letter to a nation that, I, that made my life possible. Uh, you know, if, it's like a family intervention, I think. You know, when you, when you have a family member, you've got to hold a mirror to them to see how far they've fallen uh, and what they've become. And that realization becomes the first uh, step on the path of rehabilitation. I mean, it, this this article that, that, that had such a curious beginning, you know, I, I'd been asked to write about COVID by many people, and I had resisted because I didn't think there was much new to say and so on. And one day I was out kayaking around a little island here, and I suddenly realized that this was not a story of medicine. It wasn't really a story of morbidity and mortality. It was fundamentally a story of culture and what the virus, this extraordinary organism, you know, 10,000 times smaller than a grain of salt, what it had done to the kind of the web of connectivity uh, that is for the human species, and I speak here as an anthropologist, what claws and teeth are to the tiger. And, you know, epidemics have come and gone through history. Sometimes they have traumatic impacts. Obviously, the Black Death in the 14th century wiped out half of Europe. And as a result, there was a scarcity of labor, which transformed the possibilities of the, of the, of the, uh, uh, of the lower class people, which led to a whole revolution of the Peasants' Revolt of 1381, which shook the foundations of Europe and brought to an end a medieval system that had existed for a thousand years. On the other hand, the Spanish flu of 1918, 1919, which killed millions of people worldwide, including incidentally my grandfather who walked out in the morning in Calgary and was dead by afternoon. It didn't have the same impact in part because it occurred in a world that was already numb by death because of the First World War. And we often forget that in the summer of Woodstock, when 500,000 young, young kids were swimming around the mud and uh, getting high at Woodstock, uh, there was a Hong Kong flu that killed 100,000 people. And in Berlin, they were storing corpses in subway stations because they'd ran out of room. So, you know, it, these pandemics can be, can be sort of fleeting or they can be uh, um, inflection points of history. And it struck me when I thought about this COVID um, epidemic, what it revealed was, you know, 2,000 Americans were dying a day. Uh, one American still dying every minute of every hour of every day. And, and suddenly Americans woke up, myself included, to realize that we lived in a failed state um, dominated by a dysfunctional government, at the head of which was an individual who was recommending the use of bathroom disinfectants for a disease that intellectually he could not begin to understand. And it struck me that what really had uh, died, in a sense, with COVID 
was not just the, 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 the innumerable people and the victims and the families and the brave frontline workers, but what had been shattered and drawn to tatters was this sort of illusion of American uh, exceptionalism that the world has held and that we've held. And, you know, I think the Irish Times put it perfectly when they said, you know, there have been many emotions expressed about America, good and bad, loving and, and vitriolic over the years. But the one emotion that has never been directed um, to the American people is, is, is pity. And as frontline workers awaited emergency supplies of, of basic goods from, from Asia um, or from China in, in particular, it's almost as like the hinge of history open to an Asian era. And, and the article really attempts to say, well, what the heck happened? Let's, let's go back in time for a moment. You know, we forget that on the eve of the Second World War, with Europe ablaze already, the United States was a demilitarized society. Uh, in 1940, um, both Bulgaria and Portugal had bigger armies, and yet within three years, we had 18 million men and women in uniform. It was the industrial might of America that saved civilization. And that's not hyperbole. It literally saved civilization. The Ford Motor Company produced more industrial output than Italy. For every five pounds of equipment, bandages, bullets, blood, petroleum, food, you name it, for every five pounds per capita that the Empire of the Sun, the Japanese, got to one of their frontline troops, America got two tons and across 13,000 kilometers of water. We spat out Liberty ships by the hour. The record for building a Liberty ship start to finish was four days, 29 hours and 17 minutes. It was said that a B-24 could never be built on an assembly line. It had 1.5 million parts to it. Henry Ford said, watch this. And he built the Willow Run plant that spat them out literally by the hour. We made so many Studebaker trucks that without thinking, we sent half a million to the Russians. We sent them half a million radio sets. Their armies and their blood marched across Europe and beat the Germans. 85% of German casualties were at the hands of the Russians. But they did march to Berlin on boots made in America. And, and the armies rolled into Berlin on tires that had been made in America, having, you know, Japanese within six weeks of Pearl Harbor took 95% of the world's rubber supply. Did we hesitate? No, we dropped the speed limit to 35 miles an hour to protect our tires. And the order went out to the synthetic chemists, make a synthetic industry within two years or civilization will be lost. And the Americans pulled it off just like they pulled off the Manhattan Project. Now, here's the thing. In the wake of the war, because Asia and Europe were in ashes, America, with 5% of the world's population, generated 50% of the world's economy. We made 90% of the automobiles. And that dominance and that affluence led to the Treaty of Detroit. It led to a truce between labor and capital that, in the end, gave us the weekend. It gave us the working class, the prosperous working class, at a time when a man could have a, a job, uh, support a family, uh, a single breadwinner, um, send his kids to good schools, uh, and 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 own a home and a car, and 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 that and that you know it's funny we we sometimes on the conservative right they get nostalgic for the fifties, uh, and an America that kind of never existed but has to be presumed to exist to, to rationalize their, their discomfort and sometimes their contempt for the social changes of the 1960s that took you know, women from the kitchen to the boardroom and people of color from the woodshed to the White House and gay people from the 
closet to the altar. But in fact, the 1950s in economic terms resembled Denmark more than they do did the America of today. Marginal tax rates were 90%. Now, that didn't mean that everybody paid 90% who was wealthy. There, there, were, there were all kinds of ways to get around that. But the point is, a symbol was sent to the society that if you're super rich, you're going to pay your share. The average CEO, like my father-in-law, who was then in the 50s, a CEO of Bell & Howell Company, he made only 20 times the rate of his salaried employees, whereas today that ratio would be more like 400 times. My father-in-law believed that every Bell & Howell employee had the right to shake hands with the CEO at least once a year. He would spend the months of the fall going around everywhere and shaking hands with every one of the 12,000 employees because he knew they were the heart of the, of the company. So what's happened in the intervening years? Well, the key thing is one word, fairness. And the reason there is so much anger in the Trump supporters and so much um, division in the country is that no, people no longer think that it's, it's fair. And it isn't fair. 1% of the American elite control $30 trillion of assets. The bottom half have more debt than assets. Three richest people in America have more wealth than the poorest, 160 million. And so when COVID struck, you know, a country that had spat out fighter planes by the hour couldn't manage to come up with masks and basic cotton swabs. A country that had defeated polio and smallpox, that, that had led the world in medical innovation, suddenly found ourselves talking about disinfectants and, and chloroquine for the treatment of a, of a, of a pestilence, that we were, we were setting records in terms of morbidity and mortality you know, a quarter, five uh, percent of the world's population, a quarter of all COVID um, uh, uh, cases and uh, and deaths, setting a new kind of, I don't know, a new kind of American record, if you will, for for um, uh, for, for for being number one, and not a record we would want to be proud of. And so, part of what this article is just trying to do is hold a mirror to what we become. I mean, you know, it's so sad. I mean. And it's interesting, the overall reaction to this piece has been not anger or vitriol uh, uh, as much as sadness, I think, from people. But you know, here, here we are, the nation that invented the notion that the free flow of information uh, was, was key to democracy. Now we rank 45th in the world as a nation when it comes to, um, to um, freedom of the press. You know, the, the nation that created a myth of itself by welcoming the huddled masses now have mo more people uh, in favor of building a wall along the southern border than, than sheltering the desperate women who are turning up at that border, largely because of two things, the dislocation caused by the, the wars that we financed during the 80s and 1990s, and the cocaine trade that we fuel every day with our consumption. And that's what's caused the dislocation that these people are trying to escape and we turn them down. I would argue that those who want to build a wall along the southern border are not just wrong and not just uh, naive in terms of their fantasies of, of its potential efficacy and actually, quote unquote, keeping people out. I would say those in favor of building a wall are committing treason. And they're committing treason because a dream of America is the antithesis of a wall. It's, it, it's an open door to the huddled masses of, of the world. And by the same token, we've twisted our priorities so that personal freedom 
is defined as an individual's right to own a personal arsenal of weaponry, a right that trumps the well-being of children. You have 346 kids killed in schools in the last decade. Look, I'm Canadian as well as American, and I own six guns. I have six rifles, hunting rifles, shotguns, bear protection, you know, none of which are licensed, none of which the government knows about, but I just can't own a hidden handgun. I'm not permitted to own an automatic machine gun. And that just seems to be common sense and not some sign of, um, of, of, of government control. And what's happened in the States is that after World War II, we kind of embrace the cult of the individual um, with, with a kind of a passion and, and extreme that we got to the point where we've sort of forgotten about community, um, the very idea of society. Um, it seems like no one owes anything to anybody. Everybody has to fight to get anything. And there seems to be, in, me in good measure, no longer a sense of collective benign purpose. And when a nation is divided against itself, when, when one side sees the sky as being one color and the other sees the same sky as being a different color, when there's no dialogue between the two and in place of, of, of differences that can be worked out uh, collectively in the spirit of the whole notion we try to have in Canada, no enemies, only solutions. If you don't have that, you lose all sense of, of, of a national self. And I think this is what was revealed in COVID. And I try to explain to my American friends um, the difference, say, as you, as you raised earlier, between Canada, a social democracy, uh, and the United States. And I use the allegory uh, or the example of getting your groceries um, at Safeway. When you, when you get your groceries generally, whether it's in Milwaukee and Chicago or Gary, Indiana, there's, there's kind of a, uh, often there's a, a class, uh, educational, um, uh, economic, um, racial chasm between you and the checkout person that's very difficult to bridge. And in Canada, you don't feel that chasm. It doesn't mean that you're necessarily peers. It doesn't mean that you may not be more educated or less educated or more affluent or less affluent, but there is a sense of being part of a wider community. And, and, and the reason for that is very simple. You know that the cashier knows that you know they're getting a decent wage because of the unions. And you know that they know that probably your kids go to the same local public school, public schools that aren't funded by property taxes that invariably favor the children of the affluent living in the affluent suburbs, but are funded by the government, which gives every school the same amount of money for every kid, which is only fair. And more importantly, thirdly, they know that you know that they know to, that if their kids get sick, they will get exactly the same medical attention as, as, as you would, and indeed as a prime minister's kids would. And those three strands woven together become the fabric of what we would call social democracy. You know, social democracy in the States is dismissed as if it's sort of socialism light. Nothing could be further from the truth. Social democracy is simply dynamic capitalism that focuses on the benef on benefiting all tiers of the society. You know, you know, the, the measure of, of wealth in, in a civilized nation is not the currency accumulated by the lucky few, but the strength of social relations and the bonds of reciprocity that bind everybody together in common purpose. 
you know, healthcare is not just about medicine. It's about sending a message of solidarity. It's about sending a message to every person at every age that they matter, that they're part of something bigger, and that the bigger thing has a, has a kindness and the decency and the wealth to protect them. And, and, and th that has real consequences in terms of the overall um, uh, uh, sense of, and mood of a people. Now, I'll, I'll just give you one example of that. When my mom was 85, she got an aneurysm. And, uh, you know, she within three hours of having a headache, she was in neurosurgery. And we went to see her, obviously, in the intensive care unit as soon as we could. And by chance, there was a little farm girl from Manitoba in the adjacent bed, the two of them sharing an intensive care unit. And surrounding that bed was a whole extended huge family from Manitoba. Now, my sister is a prominent lawyer. I've done very well as a writer and as a, you know, a filmmaker. We could have paid for that service. The same doctor, the same hospital, the same brilliant intervention, saving the lives of two people, one old woman, one young girl. But that Manitoba family, had they been in the Dakotas, might have faced a choice between bankruptcy and the well-being of their daughter. In Canada, we don't allow that choice to exist. Now that night, after we all were, had to leave the ICU, uh, the fanciest hotel in, in the capital city of British Columbia, the Empress of Fairmont Hotel, had a, had a rule, had a deal, where anybody, any Canadian who had any relative in an intensive care unit got a free room in the fanciest hotel in the city. So we all poured back to the bar. The family didn't even drink. I bought them juice and maybe I had a beer or whatever. But all together, two families, just totally different parts of the country, totally different economic and educational backgrounds. And there we were, and I lifted my glass in a toast, not to our loved ones, but to our country, because it was our country that allowed that moment to happen. And that, that, that is what we do. We, we have healthcare, for example, focused on the collective, not the individual, and certainly not on the private investor who views every hospital bed as if it was a rental property. And that pays off when you have an epidemic like, a pandemic like this. I mean, it's a stunning fact that on July 30th, as the United States reported 59,629 new cases of COVID in all of British Columbia, in all of our hospitals, in a city that's two hours north of Seattle where the pandemic hit the states, in a city that is half Asian with dozens of flights coming in from China every day, in all of our province on that date, we had five COVID patients in all of our hospitals. So something is working in Canada that is not working in the United States. And that's really the point of, of the article is, is to suggest that, that, that you know, empires come and go. Every kingdom is born to die. Few see their coming demise. And, and you know, the, 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 the 15th century, for example, belonged to the Portuguese, the, the 16th to the Spanish, 17th to the Dutch, 18th to the French, 19th to the British. The British Empire reached its greatest geographical extent, believe it or not, in 1935. People were swilling gin and tonics all around the world, still thinking they lived in an empire. But we now know, of course, that the empire was bled white and bankrupt by the First World War and the torch had passed to America. So we don't often see this coming. And I'm not longing for the end of the American century. 
On the contrary, it's no time to celebrate, no time to gloat. Believe me, if the, if the weight of history does indeed pass to Asia and the hands of China, many of us will certainly be nostalgic for the very best elements of the American century. But if we are to have another century, we have to look into the mirror and see what has become of us. And the, the absolute essential thing is not who wins in November, because whoever wins, the victory on either side is only going to enhance the polarization that is here today in America. The only thing that can help America is something to bring people together. And that has to be economic justice, social justice, racial justice, so that no one feels um, left out and no one feels not part of the American dream. You write that as a number of countries moved expeditiously to contain the virus, the United States stumbled along in denial as if willfully blind. And the United States does spend a lot of time in denial. You were talking about being in a safe way. I'm certain that a lot of people here in the United States are just in denialism about the suffering that those workers at the Safeway are going through, unfortunately. You write that with less than 4% of the global population, the U.S. soon accounted for more than a fifth of COVID deaths. The percentage of American victims of the disease who died was six times the global average, achieving the world's highest rate of morbidity and so on. So what does that lack of collective shame, if you will, reveal to you about culture in the U.S.? Why does individualism... I don't think it's, I don't think it's culture. I think it's not fair to say it's, uh, you know, collective shame. It's well, just well, we've uh, why does... atomized the family. We've atomized the individual, um, you know, to the extent that, um, you know, you know, you know, you know we, for example, we have slogans like 24-7, implying total dedication to the workplace at the expense of family. And the average American father spends only 20 minutes a day in direct communication with a child. And, and that child, by the time they're 18, on average, has spent two to three years watching a glass screen, whether it's a laptop or whether it's a video game, whether it's a television. And that's contributed to an obesity epidemic so severe that your own Joint Chiefs of Staff have, have written op-eds in the Washington Post calling obesity a national security crisis. I mean, you know, if, if you want... If you want to see a sign of, of uh, decay, look at any sporting event, uh, photograph of any sporting event in the 1940s, and you will struggle to find anyone who is overweight. Look at a sporting event today anywhere in America, and you struggle to find someone who is not um, overweight or even clinically obese. I mean, you look, look at what we do to our old people. Only 6% of American homes have grandparents and grandchildren beneath the same, the same roof. Uh, only half of Americans report having meaningful so social relations uh, on a daily basis. Now, you know, I don't know quite how people come up with some, such data, but harder data it, are to be found. And, and the fact is that America consumes two-thirds of the world's antipsychotic drugs, antidepressant drugs. We, 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 we have a, a, an epidemic of opioid use that has caused, caused opioid-mediated uh, deaths to be the highest a cause of mor mortality uh, for those Americans under under fifty, and I and I think at the at the at the, at the heart of all of these um, dysfunctions is a widening gap between those who have and those who have not, and and when when you know when when working class people low you know middle class people, you know I mean when I you know we we forget how profound this transformation was when I. I graduated from high school, I think it was 71, and in 70, no, or 70, whatever it was, but in 1970, 
you know, lots of my friends here in British Columbia, for example, you know, chose to work for the unions, not go to college. It was actually a, a completely reasonable life path to take. You could work your way up in the union. You got very good industrial wages, benefits, and so on. You could raise a family. Well, that was how it was in the States as well. But that's largely disappeared thanks to globalization. Now, we, America, particularly corporate America, has celebrated globalization now for two generations with almost iconic intensity. But meanwhile, those who are losing their jobs um, and seeing towns that are seeing factories close know very well that all globalization is is, is capital on the prowl in, in search of cheaper um, sources of, of labor. Uh, and, and so, you know, until we somehow come to terms with that, uh, I'm not sure what, what the future holds for, for the states. So uh, one of the things that you were mentioning was we, sh- you know, we should have had a larger government response, federal government response, a, a you know, we should have had a single uh, government response to how the how we were going to be reacting to the coronavirus. Uh, during this week's Republican National Convention, they keep saying that that kind of big government response that the Democratic, Democrat, they claim Democrats wanted is just the beginning of big government takeover and having a police state. What would you say to somebody who argues that a big government response to a a global pandemic is nothing more than one step closer to having a big government police state. Well, I think it's absolute nonsense. I'd say I'd point to one statistic, that very statistic on the day that as a result of that way of thinking, you had 60,000 new COVID cases. We, with hardly a police state, uh, had five patients in all of our hospitals. Look, you know, I'll tell you, you know, when people don't wear masks, when people uh, flaunt um, um, uh, the, 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 the medical uh, um, advice by flocking to bars, flocking to conventions, you know, they're not, this, they're not showing strength. They're showing the weakness of a people who lack the stoicism to endure the pandemic or the fortitude to defeat it. And to my mind, you know, the, the, the greatest sign of, of, you know, I mean, it's, off, it's, it's often said, you know, that, that social democracy can never work in the United States because, because it's, you know, communism light or just what you were just suggesting. But, but it, that may well be true. But if so, it's a stunning indictment. And, and, it, and it brings to mind Oscar Wilde's quip that the United States was the only country to go from barbarism to, to decadence without passing through civilization. And one sign of decadence, if you will, of terminal decadence, is the fact that in 2016, roughly 62 million people chose deliberately, consciously, thoughtfully even, to vote their indignation. You know, their own anger and their own uh, sense of... Uh, of, uh, of um, contempt in a way led them to elect in this sort of gesture of protest a man who they all knew uh, was was transparently unequipped for the job Um, an individual whose only credential for higher office was his willingness to validate their hatreds and target their enemies um, real and imagined and we've seen the consequence of pure incompetence in the White House. You can't take the highest job in the world 
if you have no notion of history, if you do not read, if you spend seven hours a day watching cable television shows, trolling through them to see who you will approve and who you will not approve. When it comes out what Trump actually did in his years in the White House, Americans will just be absolutely horrified that they elected such an ill-equipped, um, not to mention morally and ethically compromised individual to the highest office in the land. Look, I mean, if Washington famously couldn't tell a lie, this man cannot recognize the truth. And he has by record now uttered over 20,000 distortions and lies, demonstrably proven lies since he became um, uh, president. You know, he's, he's inverted the, the glory of Abraham Lincoln um, to offer only, you know, charity for none and malice towards all. You know, this was an act of decadence to elect such an individual. And I'm not saying that in terms of politics. My politics are not left at all. Um, it, it's just that, you know, you, you, if you look at like um, any, any thoughtful person on, on all across the political agenda is appalled by the sheer incompetence, the, 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 the lack of knowledge of history. I mean, what, you know, cozying up to dictators like Putin, abandoning uh, 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 partnerships with nations that have maintained the stability and peace of the world. It's not trivial, the fact that we have lived in an atomic age since 1945 and somehow managed to avoid nuclear war. You know, it's not trivial, the challenge of dealing with a global climate crisis. You know, it, 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 it's, it's not trivial, um, the extinction crisis that's happening around the world. I mean, we need meaningful, thoughtful, deep leadership. And that could have come from a Mitt Romney, a Jeff Flake, any number of, of, of statesmen or women on, in the Republican Party, including my own father-in-law, who would be rolling over in his grave uh, if he realized that the, 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 the finger on the nuclear trigger was that of Donald Trump, who can't even tell you what date the Second World War began. <laughs> the level of ignorance that is, you know, ignorance means lack of knowledge. And to have elected this individual, who it will come out, was not even the businessman he claimed to have been. All he's ever managed to do is bankrupt companies. All he's ever managed to do is lie about his record. His own sister just announced that he used someone else to write the exams to get into graduate school. I mean, what, what would you, how would you feel, anyone in this audience, if they learned that your son or daughter did not get into the University of Chicago or, or, or Nor Northwestern because someone else got in, in their place because they hired some person to write their entrance exam and, and that's how they got in and that's why your daughter and son didn't get in. How would you feel about that? Well, that's the guy that you've elected or some people have elected to run your country. I mean, I mean, it, when it comes out, people are going to wake up. I mean, you, know, you think of the way that, for example, Joseph McCarthy dominated the political airways and, the, and, and this sort of political space of America for a few short, brutal um, and horrific years in the early 1950s. And once he fell, he fell so fast that it literally destroyed him, and he was dead by alcoholism within months. Well, you wait and see. 
when the world wakes up to the reality of who has been in this White House, once we really know the details of what went on uh, beyond just these tell-all books and so on, I think Americans are going to be absolutely shocked and horrified. And I say that coming from someone who's on the right of the political spectrum. We have been speaking with writer and photographer Wade Davis, who wrote the Rolling Stone article, The Unraveling of America. He's got a new book out called Magdalena, River of Dreams, a travelogue of the beautiful Columbian River Magdalena. You can find out more about Wade at DavisWade.com, and you can follow Wade on Twitter at author Wade Davis. One last question for you, Wade. And as always, our final question for our guests is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience might hate your response. You write that the choice so many Americans made in 2016 was to prioritize their personal indignations, placing their own resentments above any concerns for the fate of the country and the world. And I'm very afraid that that's where American politics reside across the spectrum right now. So, Wade, how can those politics of personal indignation be overcome? Well, you know, I think, you know, I, I think, first of all, we have to, at some level, recognize that if we really want to um, create a better tomorrow, we have to recognize there are no enemies, just solutions. And uh, the solutions, you know, are, you know, I can't begin to prescribe what the solutions should be for, for the United States. But, but, but I can say this, that health care for everybody isn't just about medicine. It's about sending a, a message. Schools that are funded equitably across the board, again, sends a message. Cracking down on tax evasion of both the wealthy and corporations, it's absolutely appalling that any individual uh, would choose to evade taxes simply because they can get away with it. That's not what democracy is, is all about. Gun control. The Canadian model is actually an excellent model. We all have as many guns as we want. In fact, I think you probably could find out that we may have more hunting rifles per capita than the States does, but we just don't allow our people to use automatic machine guns. And that just seems to be common sense. How about mitigating the divisive role of social media, Facebook, where most Americans get their news, which through the algorithms isolates people into clo closer and closer circles of their own of their own ideological uh, kind, if you will. What about fundamental electoral reform? You know, we in Canada have elections that are saturated with dark and bloody money, but at least our elections are over in six weeks. How about legalization of drugs to eliminate the criminal element and therefore enhance prison reform? It's simply unsustainable to have a situation where the vast majority of prison inmates in the United States are African-American, when African-Americans only make up 13% of the population. We have the same exact problem in Canada, only our prisons are um, disproportionately full of First Nations. Recognizing immigration not as a curse, but as a blessing, the foundation. How can you have a, a troll like Stephen Miller in the White House, whose own family came to this country but two generations ago, now saying that no one else is to come? Destroying, finally, race, using the genius of genetics to show definitively that race is a fiction, that we're all cut from the same genetic cloth, that the genetic endowment of humanity is a continuum. Race has no meaning whatsoever. You know, how about, how about um, you, you know, um, a, an obligatory period of national service? 
where we take young men and women, as they do in Israel, and oblige them to mix together for the common good, sending a message when all these kids are just desperate for, for initiations, desperate for, for, for solidity, desperate to have some focus to their lives in that difficult period of time between high school and the first years of college. And why not have a national service where, where people from inner cities and outer suburbs are mixed together um, to, to do, do something not for themselves uh, or for their own kind, but for the country and the, 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 the collective. I mean, there's a, how about a return to the fairness doctrine in the uh, public airways so that you can't just get on a television program and do what both happens from both left and right. I mean, you can watch CNN and you can watch Fox in America and you'd think they'd be talking about different universes. Well, that's partly because they are allowed to do just that. But the fairness doctrine that was brought in by Roosevelt meant that you could not, in the news, um, just say what you wanted to say or on talk radio. And that's why we, why did, why did we have a Walter Cronkite who year after year after year was the most respected man in America by orders of magnitude, more so than any president in his lifetime, with the possible exception of Roosevelt. And that's because Walter Cronkite could be trusted. He was trusted because he didn't take a side when he told the news. He did his best with his team to present the news as it was and giving both sides, as it were, the opportunity to be part of the dialogue. And so there's a million actual things. And I'm actually following up with a Rolling Stone piece um, to try to create something, to suggest some kind of uh, roadmap to a more connected uh, country. I mean, this is something we have to work on together. I mean, it, 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 you know, it doesn't do any good to sit back and just yell at the other. Um, that's not going to get us anywhere. We need to come together. You have to look for the better angels of your nature. You have to realize what America is capable of. I think the example of the Second World War is something we should be, be, be holding up to, to our children. When we came together in such an extraordinary way in common purpose, you know, a, a single factory in Detroit, the, the, the Chrysler's Detroit Arsenal, made more tanks than the entire German Reich. I mean, it goes on and on and on what America is in fact capable of when the nation comes together. Wade, thank you so much for being on our show. I really appreciate it. Your new book, again, is called Magdalena, River of Dreams. And as you were saying, you are going to have a follow-up article at Rolling Stone on your potential solutions for what is plaguing us here in the United States. Writer and photographer Wade Davis wrote the Rolling Stone article, The Unraveling of America. You can find out more about Wade at daviswade.com, and you can follow Wade on Twitter at author Wade Davis. Thanks so much for being on the show, and enjoy your weekend, sir. Thank you very much. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to tomorrow's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. During the Moment of Truth with Jeff Dorchin coming up, Jeff's ready for action. Later, I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz producing. This week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, do you have any more answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what will we all be using as currency after the fall? Uh, I missed my button. Okay, we'll be, what will we all be using as currency after the fall? Mark C. says, human flesh. Matt M. says, ramen noodles and pre-stamped envelopes. <laughs> uh, John T. says, antiquity. Rosalind B. says, our new currency is the Seinfeld theme. The more accurately you can sing it, the more your rendition is worth. Oh, True meritocracy. Ugh. 
Terry C says, billionaire body parts. Mm. Aaron D says, I'll say crap coin, the cryptocurrency of the financial apocalypse. Bradley R says, pogs. Chase C says, thoughts and prayers. Brian H says, hypnotized by this photo. The photo is <laughs> falafel. a falafel. Uh, Ladio says, beans and seeds. Uh, a couple more uh, via Twitter, DM, and uh, email. What we'll be using as currency after the fall? A.T. Moore says, pigskins. Fred B. says, beanie babies. <laughs> uh, 70 Alefo Manist says, zoom coin or tumbleweed. <laughs> Call Jeff. Uh, Hypocrite Reader says, sweet, sweet Kyrgyzstani Soames. That's their currency. Not I thought it was maybe a treat of some sort. but it's, uh, Adam B. says... It does sound delicious. Adam B. says... Libyan children. Wow. Andrew G says smoked brisket. Flying yes. Needle says Elon's Musk coin. Oof. And finally, Neil C says oxygen. You can uh, send your response, your answers to this week's question from hell via, uh, via Facebook, via Twitter, via email. The person who has our favorite answer to this week's question from hell gets the new black This Is Hell Truckers cap with our global This Is Hell logo in gray. You can check out the black This Is Hell Truckers cap and all our merch right now by going to thisishell.com, clicking on support, where you can see all the ways you can help out completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Alex will have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell following Jeff this week. Jeff is ready for action later. Become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell and get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams live at 10 a.m. Chicago time every Friday and is podcast at the same place shortly after. This week on Patreon, we are sharing one of our first ever interviews with yesterday's guest, award-winning author and historian, Rick Perlstein, who is on this week to talk about his new book, Reaganland. Rick has been appearing on This Is Hell for I don't know, at least 15 years, if not more. I think maybe we found one from 2004. Alex, did you decide which one of the Rick Perlstein's interviews that you wanted to play? No, nah, i got to listen to them to go through them. Yeah, we want to make sure that they have good sound quality. It's not as much as the, con- the content of it. And But one of the earliest interviews that Rick has is about people protesting outside the Republican National Convention in 2004 and how he believed if they became violent that would lead to George W. Bush being elected. Elected. I think that was our first interview with him. I'm not too sure. Meanwhile, I will be doing some media analysis and criticism. Some of you may remember that way back before the virus back in January, right after the holidays, I analyzed an unsolicited magazine that a family member is receiving. That magazine is the NRA publication America's First Freedom. So I'll be Digging deep into that, also I stumbled across the June 22nd, 2020 issue of the National Enquirer when I was up at the lake, and the headlines were curfews, exclamation point, troops in the streets, exclamation point, violence, exclamation point, chaos in America, exclamation point, protesters infiltrated by domestic crime groups, exclamation point, looting planned in advance with military precision, exclamation point, will your neighborhood be the next to go up in flames? Question mark. Life is changing forever. Exclamation point. So that's where Trump voters get their news. So on Patreon tomorrow, live at patreon.com slash this is hell, 10 a.m. Central Daylight Time podcast shortly after. We'll be playing one of the first ever interviews we did with Rick Perlstein back in the aughts, and I'll be doing deep dives into bad media. But you can only hear that if you do subscribe at patreon.com slash this is hell. We want to thank the people who joined us as Patreon subscribers this week. Adrienne, Adam, Jameson, Ben, Jared, Earl, 
Michael, Tatiana, and Brent. If you become a subscriber on Patreon, not only do you get the Sell Subvertising stickers, you also get a special secret code that gives you five bucks off of all the merch that you can find by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. And there are over 150 Patreon podcasts that you will have immediate access to. So it's like another entire year of This Is Hell. Keep in mind, a lot of the questions I asked this week were written while I was high. All three of them today. This is hell. My guess is you already have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do. Nothing to lose. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is also paradoxically the drink. There's a funny thing that happens when tyrannical rulers train their populations to accept untimely and unnecessary death as an everyday occurrence. The populace becomes ever more likely to rise up en masse and put their lives on the line, battling those hired to police them, and eventually making their way to the throats of the rulers. The same mistake the French and then the U.S. military and its civilian chess masters made throughout their colonial misadventures in Indochina are being made on the streets of every major and minor city in the world. The people will win, even against the other people, because the other people are worshipful tools of the tyrants, against the cops, because we vastly outnumber the cops, and they seem to be nothing more than a subset of the worshipful tool people anyway, against the military because in the last analysis, even the military is divided between worshipful tools and real people. And once we get past all these tools, we'll win against the rulers because the only thing protecting them will be their technology, and they need people to make that technology work. And being the people, we have those people on our side. In short, the more they take from us, the less we have to lose. And when the people have nothing to lose, the people can't lose. The evil idiots who presume to be in charge of everything crossed the line ages ago. This week in Milwaukee, they shot another unarmed, entirely innocent black man in front of his children, partially paralyzing him. In Glasgow, Scotland, a Ugandan refugee starved to death. The Greeks have been dumping refugees alive into the sea. Oh, and the death count from COVID-19 under Donald Dump's distracted negligence is over 175,000. They're coercing people to choose to work during the plague or be forced out onto the street. They're dumping refugees in the desert to die. They're putting as many poor people as they can into prisons and jails. They're cutting down the few forests that aren't on fire, depriving indigenous peoples of homes and livelihoods. They're letting the food supply decay in the ruins of Iowa as farmers go without aid, a policy of massacre by negligence, which seems to have begun with the Dick Cheney administration's response to Hurricane Katrina. Crops are failing, empires are bombing cities already in ruins, the northern ice cap of the earth is in molten tatters, plastic is continuing to be dumped and burned, and fossil fuels are still a thing. Meanwhile, on the same planet, humpback whales are launching their entire bodies vertically into the air. Cats and dogs and donkeys and pigs are forming lifelong friendships. 
Black artists are making historically informed woke horror and sci-fi movies. Drinking water from Fiji still appears in liquor stores, even in Trump country. Women complain on Twitter about being exposed to lectures on Goodfellas from their boyfriends. I continue to buy fruits I've never tasted before. Air conditioning makes life bearable for some people in three-digit Fahrenheit heat, and cheaper cooling strategies are available to others. Almost everywhere in the world, there's a social media way to keep in touch with the rest of the rebellion. Personally, I always assumed that when flagrant, moronic, overtly racist, hate-filled fascism took over the USA, I'd have been dead long before it ever got to this stage. But, as the memes and commercials say, life comes at you fast. It seems like only yesterday I was being admonished not to overuse the word fascist. It would make people take it less seriously, like the word wolf when the boy cried it too often. Or maybe it was like taking the Lord's name in vain. Someone else said, I don't see them sending people on trains to concentration camps. That was back under Bush. I said, yeah, I'd like to prevent them from getting that far. And now, here we are. The fascizing process, joyfully kickstarted by Ronald Reagan and helped along by every Democratic and Republican president since then, along with countless lackeys in the legislature, in think tanks, and on court benches, has landed us here today, where the GOP is basically a consortium of hate groups under the protection of an organized crime family racket. The Democratic core leadership is a crime organization, too, but at least they use public service as a front, and in order to keep their front up, they periodically have to commit some public service. The GOP's only front is their hollow offices. Usually they don't maintain a front. It's apparently enough for their supporters that they demonstrate the great American traits of self-interest, greed, xenophobia, and cruelty. Producer Alex put up an article from the World Socialist website entitled the Biden campaign and the attempt to rescue American hegemony. It sounds like it's warning people off of voting for Biden. It's not. It's warning people off thinking that voting at all is going to change the direction of the USA's imperialist project. It describes forces in the foreign policy community jockeying for dominance during the time Donald Dump has abandoned paying attention. The struggle against war will not go forward through the selection of either Trump or Biden, but through the independent struggle of the working class, the author concludes. So, foreign policy-wise, it's toss-up. What about on the domestic front? There's an argument that one should vote Dem to get pro-choice judges appointed. A good argument. There's the argument that dump remaining in power is good motivation for the left, but... Occupy and Black Lives Matter might like to challenge that narrative, having begun during the Obama regime. We definitely can't push dump left. Can we hope to push Biden left? I don't know. I do believe we can shame a reasonably self-aware regime to make our lives less horrible while we're fighting them. We come then to the idea of not voting. I vote for voting. I vote for forcing the more malleable regime into power and, with luck, putting the crime family in prison. What about voting for a third party? Well, 
I haven't noticed the left clamoring for Howie Hawkins or Angela Walker or indeed any other Green hopeful, but it has been brought to my attention that a third-party candidate can qualify for $20 million in campaign funds from the FEC in the next presidential election. That would be a big help for a third party, and we desperately need other leadership choices. So in a state that's safely blue or unalterably red, I say go for it. This is my attempt at pragmatic thinking, which ends up amounting to my personal preference, but my angrier thinking is I just want the dump crime family to receive the cum-dumpance that is their due. But in the longer run, which is probably the short run, a civil war is brewing. The GOP establishment is our worst enemy. Do not for a second think otherwise, regardless of what Malcolm X and MLK said on that score. People normalizing hunting Black Lives Matter protesters or marching around with automatic weapons shouting anti-Jewish, anti-immigrant, anti-woman, red-baiting, or anti-queer slogans ready to point those weapons at the targets of their bile are a far worse immediate danger than the strategically tactful liberal at the current moment. Violence will erupt. It's already erupted. The states that vote blue in this election, in a contiguous semi-perimeter up the west coast, across the northern border, down the east coast, should secede and join Canada if the U.S. military is arrayed against us. Like I said, I really hoped to have been long dead from natural causes before this happened. I sure didn't want to be an aging fart machine with sciatica, high blood pressure, and sleep apnea once the revolution rolled around, but I see there's no stopping it. I have nothing to lose, and they're trying to take even that away. But we will win. The more they take from us, the less we have to lose. And when the people have nothing to lose, the people can't lose. This has been a moment of truth. Good day. Jeffy, Jeffy. What, what, what? Lovely to hear your voice. Wonderful moment of truth. We're up against the clock. I got to let you go. I got to tell you one thing. What's that? Where's my bumper sticker? It's in the mail. No, Is it, it isn't. Really? It's sitting on my <laughs> desk. <laughs> you could just take a photograph of it and email me that. I could just uh, email the guy who sent it to us and have him send one to you. That could be beautiful, too. All right, Jeff, you stay beautiful. Oh, okay. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Merce. Producing is Alex Jerry. This week's question from hell is, what will we all be using as currency? Or kerosene, apparently. This week's question from hell is, what will we all be using as currency after the fall? Alex, how are the rest of our listeners answering today's question from hell? That was all of them. That was it? Yeah. The answers I liked the most were Dan saying hydroxychloroquine, Bradley saying feces and cocaine that have traces of dollar bills on them, Scott saying the leftover forever postage stamps we have after the USPS is finally slain, forever is forever, damn it. Issa saying pumpkin spice. Chris saying, I figure I'll just blow everybody kisses and then make a run for it. My answer to this week's question, Mel, what will we all be using as currency after the fall? What will we all be using as currency after the fall? The cure. It's always a bad simulation of what preceded it, and the cure was definitely a bad simulation for the fall. My favorite answer to this week's question, Mel, is Bradley saying feces and cocaine that have traces of dollar bills on them will be what we'll be using as currency after the fall. 
Bradley will be contacting you, and uh, please send us your mailing address so we can send you one of our new black This Is Hell trucker caps. Thanks to everybody who has gone to thisishell.com and clicked on support. Checked out our store. Thanks to everybody who's been showing our support there. Uh, Like the tithing-like commitments of Adrienne and Magnificent Me, as well as everyone who picked up some swag like our new gray on black trucker's caps, face masks, and tote bags, including... Natasha, Josh, Martin, Deirdre, Carl, Beth, Nathan, Jamal, and Anthony. Alex, who's on Monday's show? Uh, still working on Monday, but uh, I think it is... Actually, yeah, let me refresh my email to see if I got uh, they got back to me. Oh, no, not yet. Still working on Monday. Uh, I got Tuesday, Wednesday lined up, though. Tuesday, we're going to be talking with Robert Vitalis about his book, Oilcraft, The Myths of Scarcity and Security That Haunt U.S. Energy Policy. Awesome. And then Wednesday, uh, timely enough... Carolyn Turwent will be on to talk about her book, When Protest Becomes Crime, oh, sweet. Politics and Law in Liberal Democracies. On Monday, I'll be sharing a ton of listener email, and I'll probably be doing it throughout the week. We are backlogged on that. And uh, I'll also be sharing a letter I received about my masturbating habits, which has images of me photoshopped in numerous physical positions. But you got to turn in, tune in Monday for that. Do uh, Let's say we start every week's uh, live streaming shows here at thisishell.com with Alex revealing this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure was discovered by a ton of researchers in Finland because Finland's, Finns get drunk a lot. It's a dose of 1,200 milligrams of the amino acid L-cysteine. We want to thank all of this week's guests, including historian... Edward Onachi, author of Free the Land, the Republic of New Africa, and the Pursuit of a Black Nation State. Historian Rick Perlstein, author of the new book Reagan Land, America's Right Turn, 1976 to 1980. And today's guest writer and photographer, Wade Davis, who wrote the Rolling Stone article, The Unraveling of America. And by the way, he said he got the idea of that while kayaking around an island. And that kind of brings us back to the triptych I did this week, uh, my monologues of trips up, up north and how... You can only get certain inspiration from nature. I'll talk to you tomorrow on Patreon when we will be playing one of our first ever interviews with award-winning historian Rick Perlstein, and I'll be dissecting the NRA's magazine in an issue of the National Enquirer on chaos in America. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.